Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are going to talk about what might have been the greatest fraud scheme of all time. It was certainly incredibly ambitious. And I have to credit our listener from Twitter, uh, who goes by Shark Jack, for this one, because I had never heard of the Baron of Arizona, which is hilarious because I was born in Arizona. Well, and... And uh, when he asked about it, I gave the same answer that I always give, which is, you know, we get a whole lot of listener suggestions, so I couldn't tell you. And then within 30 minutes, it was like, oh, wait, now Holly's really excited about it. was. Well, because then I looked it up and I saw this is so, like, in my niche, but that there was a 1950 Vincent Price movie about it. And I love Vincent Price. Uh, And that it apparently was one of Vincent Price's favorite roles. But somehow I had missed it because I've always focused on his horror career. Uh, and then Ed Wood worked as an extra on it. So I was like, this is fascinating. Uh, but clearly it was a fictionalized account. So then I looked up the real story and then bef- I was completely fished in because it's insane and sort of a fun, wild ride. Uh, and we have to give a brief bit of background on how this whole thing could have played out because it's a pretty massive flim flam scheme. Uh, So in 1848, the Mexican War ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And according to the terms of that treaty, Mexico gave up most of what had been northern Mexico. And in exchange, the United States agreed to honor existing property rights uh, that were owned by Mexican and Spanish citizens in the newly acquired territory. And in 1853, the Gadsden Purchase added to this expanse of land and uh, the agreement was maintained, the property rights agreement. Uh, And this combined territory would eventually become Arizona and New Mexico and Utah, uh, Colorado and Wyoming. And as you might imagine, uh, there was some difficulty sorting out who owned what in this huge expanse of land. So there had been tracts of land that were granted to families or individuals by Spanish and Mexican authorities over decades and even centuries. And it had to be figured out who actually had rights to different parcels of land. Uh, And often the supporting paperwork that would determine this was sometimes an ocean away. And it took decades to sort out all of this legal uh landholding issue. And during that time, there were plenty of shady land grabs that were made by opportunistic fraudsters that wanted to profit from this real estate confusion that was going on. But none of these fraudsters were as aggressive or ambitious or as globetrottingly thorough as uh, James Addison Revis, who launched a really spectacular fraud attempt. Start with a little background on him. James was born on May 10th, 1843, near Clinton, Missouri. This was five years before northern Mexico was ceded to the United States. His mother was named Maria, and she was part Spanish. And when he was 18, Rivas served in the Confederate Army in the Hunter's 8th Division of the Missouri State Guard. While in the Army, he became a skilled forger, and he falsified documents for passes to get out of the service after it did not live up to his expectations. Yeah, he was still technically enlisted, but he would have these magical passes to go do other things and not actually do the duties that he was assigned. Uh, however, as he realized the Confederate Army was losing, he also switched sides to join the Union Army. A little bit of a flim-flammer kind of from the beginning. Yeah. He had a botched forgery attempt that set him on the run to Brazil in 1865. He returned to Missouri a year later and worked in a number of different jobs, from streetcar conductor to traveling salesman to store clerk, 
before he finally landed in the real estate business in St. Louis. And on May 5th of 1874, uh, James Addison Revis married Ada Pope, who was a woman he had known since he was a teen. Uh, and that's just, we're giving you the very brief background on him because the juicy part of his story is so big and full of details that we couldn't do the full long bio. So then we'll get right to things that happened in the Arizona Territory, which were crazy. Yes. In the spring of 1883 in Tucson, Holly's birthplace. Yep. Uh, he was a, he officially filed a claim for a massive chunk of the Arizona territory. As validation of his claim, he submitted papers indicating that the land had been acquired by George Willing and that he, Revis, now had the rights to it, having been a partner with Willings. He also produced two trunks worth of the documentation allegedly from the Spanish and Mexican archives detailing the claim's history all the way back to 1758. Yeah, he kind of opted to overwhelm them with paperwork. And Rivas asserted that a 1758 grant from King Charles III of Spain to Don Miguel Nemesia Silva de Peralta de la Cordoba, who he referred to as the first baron of Arizona, included a tract of land of more than 18,000 square miles in the Arizona territory, and that he, Rivas, was entitled to it. This space extended from west of Phoenix to the outskirts of Silver City, New Mexico, and about 50 miles north of present-day Oracle. And Rivas had amassed in these trunks of documents the history of the claim's ownership through the Peralta family, then to George Willing, and then to himself. And the documents, all of which were forgeries, included wills, there were family papers and letters, there were Peralta family portraits, uh... This first baron of Arizona was a complete fiction. He had just made this person up and developed a really extensive backstory for him. As soon as this land claim was filed, Rivas started setting up a home for himself and making arrangements to manage his new land, even though the claim hadn't been validated. He started uh, posting bills throughout the area, instructing residents to arrange a meeting with his attorneys that could establish terms of rental agreements or negotiate offers of quit claims. Yeah, he just swooped right in and tried to steal the land right out from under people's feet. He reminds me of a cat I used to have. <laughs> he was basically like, I live here now. I Thanks. own all the things. This is all mine. Uh, initially, the farmers, ranchers, and other settlers in the area were understandably skeptical about Revis's claim. But then news spread that the Silver King Mine had paid Revis $25,000 for a quitclaim deed and that the Southern Pacific Railroad had also agreed on a deal with him. Uh, so he was convincing some pretty high-level people that he was, in fact, legitimate. And this atmosphere and attitudes about him started to shift, and the skepticism about him quickly turned to outright fear. To help support his position, Revis even created stone markers and had them placed all around the land as sort of a scheme to prove to the, that the Spanish court had surveyed the territory that he claimed as his own. So frightened settlers had started paying uh, Rebus, thinking that they were his tenants now. And there were still a lot of people who believed him to be a fraud and were trying to expose him as a swindler. One of these skeptics was Royal A. Johnson, who had become Surveyor General of Arizona while the claim was being reviewed. So his predecessor had been convinced by Revis's theatrics, but Johnson felt that the validity of the claim had not been thoroughly examined. He found discrepancies between some of Revis's evidence and independently sought duplicate documentation from the archives in Mexico City. 
And meanwhile, while the claim was being reviewed and he was still collecting tenant fees, Rivas was also dealing with two lawsuits. Uh, one of those was filed on behalf of George Willing's family, and another was filed by territory, uh, Territorial Attorney General Clark Churchill and was related to his land holdings, which are being affected by Rivas's claim. The Willing family's efforts to regain some of their lost fortune sort of fell apart. Uh, they ran out of money and weren't able to continue it. And the court ended up ruling in favor of Churchill in the second suit in 1885. Revis's loss in the Churchill case spurred on his critics and skeptics. The tide of public opinion against him was further fueled by the surveyor general's contention that Revis's claim could not be validated. So it would seem like his claim to this huge swath of the Southwest was dying out. But he had a backup plan. He really did. Uh, so Rivas actually put together a second claim uh, and filed it in 1887. And this second claim, he was advancing on behalf of a woman named Sofia Loretta Michaela de Peralta de la Cordoba, the great granddaughter and sole heir of the original grantee. Uh, Sophia was conveniently also married at this point to James Revis. And Revis, to support his, his claim and sort of, you know, build a groundswell, started going by the name J.A. Peralta Revis. So remember, he already had a wife. Yeah, he didn't remember her. <laughs> she, uh, Ada was actually granted a divorce in 1883, citing her husband's apparent desertion as grounds to sever their legal union. Yeah, he seemed to not factor her in at all. He kind of left her and never went back. Uh, and to substantiate all of this new information in his new claim, Rivas had traveled to Spain and he brought back new important uh, information and documentation about the Peralta claim. There were additional dramatic tales of this orphaned lost Peralta who eventually became his wife. And, of course, a slew of newly unearthed documents, all of which were, of course, forgeries. Well, and then, then there's the part where it's just awfully convenient that he happens to have found this heir, <laughs> in air quotes, while Rebus once again attempted to set himself up and behave as though this claim had already been certified. This time, he met a lot of resistance. And once again, Royal A. Johnson, who had briefly been out of the Office of Surveyor General of Arizona, but then had returned, was ready to inspect the claim with a fine-tooth comb. So uh, Johnson, in 1890, made a full report on the alleged Peralta grant. And in the introduction to this report, he states, In my report, I shall maintain... First, that the king never recommended the grant as alleged by the claimants. Second, that no such grant as the alleged Peralta grant was ever made by the Viceroy of New Spain. Third, that admitting the legality of the alleged grant, there are no legal claimants before this office and none in existence so far as the records show. Fourth, that again admitting its legality, it is absolutely impossible to establish its boundaries. The alleged grant having... Uh, never having been bounded or surveyed, and without identified boundaries, it fails. Yeah, so he said he was going to maintain all that, and he really, really did that. Ooh, he so did. So in a move that would win over any history lover's heart, he made this incredibly detailed study of particularly the oldest documents that Rivas had submitted, and then compared them, wherever possible, to similar documents of the Spanish court at the time. He also had a tracing made of Carlos III of Spain's signature from 1759 sent to him 
via the Interior and State Departments, and he found a discrepancy when comparing it to the signature that was found on the Rivas documents. He goes on to note uh, differences in the shaping and placements of the letter S throughout the, throughout the documents and the suspicious consistency of the use of the same pen being used for multiple offices' signatures on documents. That's my favorite part. And that the pen is, in fact, modern to their time and, like, the inks were not appropriate. Uh, some people, even when they talk about the Royal Johnson's report and his research, talk about it as sort of like proto-forensics that he just got into such nitty-gritty of the whole thing. The following passage points out the logic flaw in many of Rivas's document copies. And to quote, Next in order, considering this document, comes three pages of written matter in the same handwriting. It purports to be a copy of the report of the Inquisition on the grant proposed to be given to Peralta, and also a copy of the grant, actually made by the Viceroy of New Spain as well as a lame description of the locus of the grant. The original report of the Inquisition and the original grant of the Viceroy made about the middle and last century are not produced and unquestionably have not been found. But in lieu of the original papers, so very important in considering these cases, these poor substitutes are produced. Why the locus of the original cannot be established when correct copies can be made from them, I am at a loss to understand. (laughs) Reason dictates that if bona fide copies from originals on file can be produced, there ought to be no trouble in locating the place of deposit in such originals. When we stop and reflect on the learned body of men comprising the Holy Inquisition, this alleged copy is but a sorry exhibit of their handiwork, at producing certified records. It lacks every appearance, with the possible exception of old age, that would naturally be expected in a certified record of such important documents by such an educated body of men. I love this whole report. It's long, but you can read it in its entirety on archive.org, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But he basically goes through all of Rebus's supporting documentation page by page, like we're talking trunks and trunks by this point of papers and documents, and he breaks down why each of them is false and cannot be verified. He also uses some pretty impressive historical research to disprove various elements of the case, including learning about some various legal protocols that would have been in place throughout the land grants journey that are in no way evidenced in the documentation. It is really super impressive. Uh, it also brought Johnson much acclaim and appreciation, as you can well imagine. His diligent research finally outed a suspected fraudster who had been swindling settlers and companies out of money for more than a decade at this point. So when he submitted this report and he had carefully documented all of the ways that Revis's documentation was incorrect, it was like you probably could hear a cheer throughout the Southwest. I'm imagining there are people who still believed, believed him because that is how it would be today. There would be people who were insisting that the entire inquest was wrong. Well, Rivas certainly was. Oh, yes. (laughs) You would think that he would slink away in shame at this point, but no, you would be wrong. Rivas filed a lawsuit against the United States in claims court, saying that their land had been wrongfully taken from them. He sought $11 million in damages. Yeah, and he drummed up uh, all kinds of witnesses to back up his claims about his wife Sophia's lineage and that she was, in fact, a real Peralta. And he uh, seemed to feel like his claims were supported by all of his evidence. A government investigator sent to Spain discovered evidence that Rivas had been to the government archives in Seville. 
Speaking with archive staff, it appeared that Rebus had likely planted documents there and he was wanted by the authorities. Yeah, there's a whole wacky story about how he was working with an archivist to try to find a thing and they couldn't find it together. And then suddenly it showed up and they got really suspicious of him. And uh, one of the the managers of the archives made them number all the documents really carefully and catalog them before Revis could come back in. But suddenly he had another document that was not numbered and was folded differently than everything else and was trying to say that he had found it in a box. Like, it's a whole crazy, this thing is like the best telenovela ever. Well, and I was just thinking, this happened on The Good Wife. (laughs) (laughs) And then evidence was also uncovered that witnesses that Revis had arranged that were going to vouch for his wife's uh, lineage had in fact been paid large sums of money for their testimony. Not looking good at this point. No. Shall we take a moment from all of his drama though and <laughs> yes. have a word from our sponsor? That sounds grand. All right. So back to the wild story of James Rebus. So in 1894, while the government was compiling its evidence in this case, Rebus wrote a letter to one of his attorneys, James O. Broadhead, that sort of, I think he's trying to establish the validity of why all of these wild twists and turns of his stories were completely natural. In it, the first thing he does is outlines the acquisition of the Willing papers, beginning with how he met Dr. Willing, who claimed to be related to a man Rebus had known and trusted. So in this tale, Rebus writes that Willing came to him as a real estate agent in St. Louis and that Willing had purchased a large tract of land in the Arizona Territory from Miguel Peralta, the son of the owner, for about $20,000 in gold dust and uh, mules with pack saddles. And according to the Rebus letter, Willing had told him, quote, when the trade was made, I had no paper on which to write the deed. So I scoured the camp and found a sheet of greasy pencil marked camp paper upon which I wrote the deed. And as there were no justices nor notaries present, I had it acknowledged before witnesses. And I shall take you with me and show you the deed because I have it in a safe in Mr. Hall's office. He being a friend of mine whom I can trust. Every part of this is so funny to me because it, there is always like a lot of layers of drama. And well, I didn't have a real deed because I just bought it off this guy and his elderly father was there and very old and I traded mules and I, we didn't have a paper. So I just wrote it on like a scrap of paper and everybody said that was cool. <laughs> like people keep saying you can tell who's lying because they're giving you too much detail. Oh, and Revis is a master of detail. Yeah. He goes on at length about how he was initially not sure that any worthwhile enterprise could come out of this property. But then he became convinced, and so he offered to join Willing in his enterprise if Willing would make Revis an equal partner in ownership. Revis goes on to say that while he and Willing were traveling to Arizona separately, Revis was uh, detained due to ill health. And at that point, Willing arrived in Arizona, but then died. And Willing supposedly had all the pertinent documents of ownership with him. And after initially exhausting other means of obtaining verification of his rights to the property, Revis claims to have made a contract with Willing's widow, entitling him to the same portion of the estate that he had bargained with her late husband for. And then he eventually bought out her interest. As all good soap operas go, there's a twist at this point in Revis's story. While investigating the matter of Dr. Willing, he discovered that there was a charge of fraud against Willing. Rebus's letter goes on to say that the rightful heir was in the person of a child, one of a pair of twins born near Los Angeles, California, 
who was then supposed to be living in Northern California and who bore the name of the mother, then dead, who would, if living, be the only lineal descendant of the crown grantee. Then, in the most perfect happenstance, Rivas claims to have bumped into this girl in question, who was 14 at the time, on a train car. What luck! And he fell in love with her, which was also very handy. Although they did not marry until she was older, so... Just to, he was many things, but apparently waited for her to be kind of a, a more mature age before he married her. His tale goes on to include this full cast of characters, each of whom gives him some piece of vital information to the Peralta land puzzle and then magically, mysteriously disappears. One such instance involves a woman who tells him all about the surviving twin and that the Miguel Peralta who sold the willing the land was a fraud. And Rivas claims to have drawn a picture of her being artistic in my nature and writing her name in his notebook. But then he accidentally lost the notebook in which he did that. Whoops. So he can't remember her name because he lost that notebook, even though he took copious notes. <laughs> There's a lot of that uh, throughout this letter. And the letter is uh, linked in our show notes. It's in uh, an, part of an article that another scholar has written about that particular letter. So you can read the whole wacky thing. And it really is. It reads like a, you know, three penny opera sort of situation. <laughs> Historians dismiss this letter as largely fiction and, you know, point out that it's an ornate web that's woven to justify Rivas's first claim involving Dr. Willing and his deeds and then how he kind of backpedaled and switched horses to, you know, being married to the Peralta family and how this worked out. And, of course, most people are of the uh, group opinion that he kind of plucked this orphan out of nowhere and then told the people caring for her, no, no, she's actually royalty. And they believed him because he was a master flimflam man. And then he, she was kind of raised from that point on as a baroness. And then he married her. And so they believed it at that point and were willing to really dig in and assert the truth of his claims. Oh, so many people involved. Yeah. And George, or, you know, also known as Doc Willing, was really a real person who had been a doctor and then turned to prospecting. He likely sought out Rivas, who was a real estate agent, because of his reputation for forgery. Willing really did die suddenly right after filing his claim in Arizona, and his death was never investigated, but was likely the result of foul play. It was not the first time that he had been part of a nefarious deal. No, he was definitely one of, you know the people who saw this whole kind of weird trying to sort out the um, the land and who really owned it as an opportunity. So this was not the first time he had made a land grab. Their odds were somebody was angry at him and killed him. So the Rivas civil trial over this documentation and his rights or not to the land started on June 3rd of 1895. But although the United States District Court's challenge to Rivas' claims had actually been on the U.S. land claims court docket for two years at that point, it had been filed initially in February 1st of 1893. And then they were working on their case that whole time, which is also the point at which Rivas wrote this letter to his uh, attorney. Once the case went before the court... Rivas not only lost it, but found himself being indicted on criminal charges. And on June 27th of 1896, James Rivas's criminal trial began, and he was convicted of attempting to defraud the U.S. government. And he was sentenced to two years in prison and fined $5,000. He was incarcerated in the Santa Fe Penitentiary, uh, although on April 19th of 1898, he was released three months early for good behavior. 
At this point, Sophia was living and working in Colorado and had the couple's twins with her. After traveling the country trying to get investors interested in development plans for Arizona, James finally settled for a while with the family, but they wound up getting divorced in 1902. And on November 20th of 1914, Rivas died of bronchitis in Denver, Colorado. He was 71 at the time, and he was buried in a pauper's grave. And he had spent some time in the poorhouse uh, at various points in between his divorce in 1902 and the 12 years before he passed away. So he really went from being kind of this man living a grand life to barely scraping by. On February 14th, 1912, Arizona became the 48th United States state. Yeah, not a barony at all. No. Uh, and there are... uh some historical footnotes that actually say he never claimed himself to have the title Baron of Arizona, although he did refer to his wife, Sophia, as the Baroness. So he kind of gets that name more by historians than of his own accord, but he certainly claimed to own the whole thing. It all blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, it doesn't blow my mind at all, because I know people who have been defrauded of things. Yeah. And... And, and people, a lot of people are, you know, are, are trusting souls that other people take advantage of. But at the same time, he was putting fake markers all over the desert. I just am floored by how devoted he was to this scheme that he traveled all the way to Europe to plant documents that would could later be found to support him. Like, yeah. He really uh, went to some great lengths to try to. Yeah. Like he, the fact that he found a, a supposed heir to get married to instead of just like moving on to some different scheme. Yeah, he was dug in at that point. And it makes me wonder how much of his sort of fraud was planned out ahead and how much of it he was kind of making up as he went along because he was in too deep at that point. Right. Like he didn't want to back out of it. Uh, but it's quite astounding to think about. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. And this is from our listener, Jackie. And she is one of many that wrote us about this uh, in the Prince Sato podcast, where I mentioned the discrepancies, depending on what uh, piece of historical writing you're reading about Prince Sato's age uh, when he got married. And I, I feel foolish because this is a part of Asian culture that I, for some reason, have never known about, even though it's quite common. Well, and it's one that I knew about, but it didn't occur to me that it would apply in this case, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. So, uh, and Jackie, like I said, is one of several people that wrote us, so I just plucked one of the many out. Uh, she says, Dear ladies, I'm a huge fan of the podcast as well as several others from the How Stuff Works family. I just finished listening to your Prince Sato podcast and wanted to mention something. The confusion on his age as to when he got married could in part be explained by how Korea measures age. Instead of starting at zero on the day a person is born and then accumulating months and years, every person starts out at at one year old. For example, I was born in 1989, which means that I am 24 years old in Western standards. However, in Korea, I would be 25 years old. Uh I, I, like I said, I feel foolish that I never knew this. But also, uh, and I think some of our listeners that wrote about it mentioned this as well, that your birthday is not where your age changes. The new year is where your age changes. Right. So that could account for things being sometimes one year different, sometimes two, mm-hmm. depending on who did the math of subtraction, who converted the ages to, uh, from like the Asian stand, the Korean standard to Western standards and who didn't. Right. Well, and I think, uh, when we were recording the episode, I just uh, assumed 
wrongly, perhaps, um, that like often when we get into the the ages of people in the more distant past, mm-hmm. often there are inaccuracies. Yeah, I just attributed it to that being the way that it works sometimes um, because it didn't really occur to me that if a if a source were translating from Korean, that someone would change that year without noting that they had done so. Yeah. Which I don't know why I would think that that would automatically be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> because it's clear that often uh, translations and, and history books and things take liberties that, that they maybe should not without noting that they've done that. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those things that sometimes... Uh, to them, it seems so obvious. Right. Of course, I transliterated the year to the to what the Westerners would think it was or vice versa. Or I kept it exactly the same and didn't notate that it's a different aging system. It's kind of fascinating and cool. And confusing. Confusing. And- well, and we I mean, as Tracy said, there are often times where we're looking up historical figures and there is some discrepancy just because different records have fallen into different hands of people Different records may have been written with different penmanship that isn't always legible. And so a best guess is made. I mean, there's so many different things that happen where, uh, especially the further back you go, the more things get a little wobbly in terms of exactness when it comes to dates. Yep. But so that was cool. So thank you for all of you that wrote in. And now I know a new thing. Hooray. I love knowing new things. If you would like to write us, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on facebook.com slash history. On Twitter at Missed in History, on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and you can find our Pinterest boards, which are very, very busy places these days, just Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. Uh, if you would like to learn about a topic that is sort of related to what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the word the words con artist, and you will get how con artists work. We can all agree that Revis was quite a con artist. <laughs> if you would like to learn about that or almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.